Welcome. We are glad that you are here. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to speak here pretty regularly. Uh, we are in the middle of this series up there. You could see it. It's called Fix Your Eyes. If you can't read that, you need to fix your eyes because that's really big. Um, <laughs> fix Your Eyes. This is a series. <laughs> that was a really bad joke. Um, this is a series where we are uh, learning again, practicing again, looking to Jesus. Looking, looking to learn to remember to fix our eyes on Jesus um, for direction, for strength, for comfort. Um, a few weeks ago when we opened this series, we talked about how sometimes we can grow weary and we can lose heart. And the, the antidote to that, the solution, is to fix our eyes on Jesus again. And so that's what we're going to continue to do this morning. Last week, uh, Andy was up here and he was speaking and he talked about how one of the issues that we face is there's all these different sorts of images of who Jesus is. And you might remember this if you were here last week. There's something like a Santa Claus Jesus, right? Where if you're on the good list, you'll kind of get what you want at the end. Um, there's something like a genie Jesus, where like you rub the lamp and you get a bunch of wishes and he delivers what you want. And how those images of Jesus just aren't real, they're not good, they're not helpful. And he pointed us towards like a different way of seeing Jesus, like the Jesus Jesus way of seeing Jesus. And we're going to continue in that line of thought this morning. Um, we're going to look at really at like the central moment in, in like the life, the story, the history of Jesus, but it's also the central moment really in all of our histories. And that's Jesus' death on the cross. Now, before we kind of launch into the story, though, I want to share with you why I think this really matters, why I think this is important. I mean, Jesus' death on the cross is important for an uh, infinity amount of reasons, um, but here's why it's important this morning. Every Monday morning, uh, we here at Park Church, we have a staff meeting. We get together, we talk about, you know, issues, how the church works. Throughout the week, we're uh, supposed to... Um, we're supposed to read a chapter of a, of a book um, or something like that um, on leadership or on some issue on how to do things better because we want to continually learn to do church better, to lead better, to be a better staff for you. Um, this week we talked about a chapter and the chapter was really about vision. It was about like mission. It was about what kind of drives you forward, what moves you forward. Um, and the way that this author talked about like how to think of your vision is he said, think about it like this. Think about what keeps you up at night. What keeps you up at night? And whatever that is, that's, what, like, that's what's got to drive your vision. That's what's got to like, you know, move you forward. And if you were to stop and think about what keeps you up at night, I bet you could probably think of a bunch of things. Things like you know, your relationship with your, with your spouse or with your, or with your son or with your mom or with your sister like, isn't what you want it to be. Or like that thing at work, that's really hard. Um, those are the kind of things that keep you up at night. And on a personal level, those are the kind of things that inform like, your vision for the next day right? or for the next week. Like This is what I need to fix. This is what I need to work on. Um, if you think about that as, as, as a family, like what keeps us up at night as a family? We've got to work on that in your job, in your company, if you run a company, if you run a team at your company, like, what keeps you up at night? That's what, that, that's what I got to work on. We ask this question, though, as a church, what, what, what keeps us up at night? And, um, and we shared, and it was my turn to share, and, you know, what keeps me up at night? The answer is nothing, because I'm the kind of sleeper that I hit the pillow, and you have to wonder if I've died or not. Um, so nothing keeps
me up at night, metaphorically, what keeps me up at night? Um, the answer that we kind of landed on, I think it's actually something that has driven what we do here at Park Church for a long time. And this is what keeps me up at night. This is what ought to keep us up at night as a church. It's the people out there, the people in our lives who don't believe in God, who don't believe in Jesus, who don't, um, who don't see the deep goodness of who God has shown himself to be in Jesus. And the people out there, sometimes it's the people in here as well. Because um, maybe the way that they've grown up or what they've learned as they were a kid, it's taught them bad things about who God is. It's taught them bad things about who Jesus is. Maybe the church that they grew up in just wasn't, you know, or maybe um, they've just heard these kind of things from pop culture and from the media. They've kind of gotten these images, right? Like that's what Annie talked about, these sort of images of Jesus that are just not helpful or that are just destructive or that are hurtful or that are just plain wrong. Um, and the issue is people suffer because of it. People suffer because of it. Either they are, um, they are far from, they are separated from God because of these really, really just damaging images of who Jesus is. Like, they wouldn't want to be near that Jesus, and so they find themselves far from God because of it, and they suffer because of that. Or they're laboring under an image of Jesus that is just um, oppressive, or that's not life-giving, or that's hurtful, or that's um, even just dangerous. They're not bad people. They're not um, any worse than we are, of course. But they're people who have just missed the boat on how deeply good Jesus is. And how faithful and how present and how reliable and how hope-filled God in Christ truly is. And it's not just people out there. It's people in here, too. Maybe, maybe you feel that way deep down inside, um, but couldn't really admit that. But maybe that's you, too. Because we have a tendency to miss it. We have a tendency to not get Jesus right, to not see, to not understand, to not believe. So what I want to do this morning uh, is show you Jesus again in a new way, a way that might be a bit weird, that might be a bit challenging. You might not have heard Jesus talked about in this way before, or maybe you have, but if you're able to see what I think this story shows, if you're able to see it, you will be able to... Um, experience a new kind of freedom and a new kind of comfort and hope. And you're able to go from here with a new kind of purpose. So what I want to share comes from um, the Gospel of Mark. Mark was one of the four people who wrote books about Jesus. They're called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's book, um, I really think I like it the best. Uh, Although I also like Luke and John and Matthew, so I'm not sure which one I like the best, but maybe I like Mark the best. Um, Mark's gospel is written in such a way that it invites you again and again and again to take a look at Jesus, to try to see Jesus clearly. Um, Andy's message last week talked about this. There's lots of stories about blindness. There's lots of stories about not being able to see Jesus clearly. Throughout his gospel, it is littered with examples case after case of people who just get it wrong again and again. Um, the religious leaders, like the holy people, the guys who were in charge of God's people, they continually saw Jesus completely wrong. 
even his inner circle, like the 12 men who were like his disciples, who were his closest followers, their story is one where, you know, they would take two steps forward in understanding Jesus and then one back. And then they would take one forward and they would take five steps back again and again. Generally in Mark, it's the people who like, they shouldn't see Jesus clearly. The outsiders, the people who had no claim to Jesus, those are the people who actually could see Jesus clearly. And this morning's story, um, this morning's story is really no different. It's an outsider. In fact, it's an enemy who gets it. So we're going to look at that story. But first, I want to draw your attention to the way that Mark opens his, his book, how he opens his gospel. This is what he writes. Right at the first sentence, first chapter, the beginning. This is how he starts. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word good news up there, that's where we get the word gospel from. It means the same thing. It's why these books are called gospels, because this is how Mark begins it. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a little sidebar, I don't know where a lot of you, um, where your faith is, where your faith isn't, what you believe or don't believe, whether you're, um, you're just here because someone brought you or you're antagonistic towards faith, you don't care about, you don't think Jesus is real. Here's what we believe about Jesus and you. Uh, Jesus is good news for you. Whether, whether that's part of your universe of thought or, like, Jesus is good news for you. That's a sidebar. Um, this is the way that Mark opens his book, uh, beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What Mark is doing with this little intro is saying, this is who I'm going to present throughout this book. Jesus Christ, good news, Son of God. Of God. If you read the book, if you come out of interacting with Jesus, this is, this is where you should land, Son of God. Um, throughout the book of Mark, God's voice from heaven calls Jesus Son of God a few times. Um, demons, they pick it up. They call him Son of God once or twice. Do you know that throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, though, no human being calls Jesus Son of God? until the very, very, very end, until he has actually died on the cross. Um, and it comes from the lips of this outsider, of an enemy uh, who is actually an officer in the Roman army, a centurion. And so that's his story. We're going to look at that right now. This takes place in the 15th chapter. There's only 16 chapters. Chapter 16 is very short. It's when Jesus is raised from the dead. Chapter 15, this is where Jesus um, is crucified and died. This is... This is the line. Uh, Mark writes, Now when the centurion who stood facing Jesus, Jesus is nailed to the cross at this point, saw that in this way, in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. Truly, this man was the son of God. Centurions were commanders in the Roman army. Um, and do you know what his job most likely was? His job was to A... See that Jesus was crucified. B, see that Jesus remained crucified. And C, see that Jesus died from being crucified. He was there. His job literally was to make sure Jesus was executed um, in this way, to execute him properly. Now, uh, sidebar number two. Think about the person in your life who is furthest from God, who you don't think has any hope of ever coming to believe in Jesus, um, who's antagonistic towards faith. Maybe that person's even you. Uh, if this guy could get it right, if this guy who's literally there to kill Jesus, 
if he could see it clearly, um, if he could get it right, you can too. That person who you're thinking of can too. No one is ever beyond hope when it comes to Jesus. This centurion had seen countless crucifixions, um, up close, graphic, and personal. These are ugly affairs. Um, They're very public, so people will be afraid when they walk by. They would be scared to do the kind of thing that gets you crucified. And he's up there. This was his job. He's up there looking at Jesus hanging on the cross. He had done this countless times, but this afternoon, he's up there looking at Jesus hanging on the cross, and he sees him up there. He sees him suffering to breathe, um, just barely holding on to life. And as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, something happened in him that caused him, when he saw him breathe his last breath, he, he caused him to get it right. God's son. Mark's purpose is to bring people to this confession, to bring people to see this. And this outsider, this guilty man who had no way of understanding who Jesus was beforehand, he's the one person to finally get it right. And so the question is, what, what did the centurion see? What, what was he a witness to when he saw Jesus die in this way? At this point in verse 39, Mark has already spilled 38 verses on Jesus' like, trial and arrest and crucifixion and death. Um, he's already set the scene by this point. By this point in the story, um, Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 followers. He had already been betrayed by Judas. Um, When he was arrested in the garden, the other disciples, the other close followers, all of them ran away, except for Peter. Peter is the guy who is Jesus' number one follower. He followed closely behind. He said, I will never um, deny you. I will never abandon you. And that night, you know this story, perhaps, if you've been here before, um, that night, Peter denies Jesus three times. Uh, The crowds, the crowds at that time, there was a festival. The crowds had the opportunity to free one man. They could either free Jesus or they could free this known criminal named Barabbas. And I wish I had time to really talk about that story this morning. Um, He could free one, the crowds could free one of those two guys and they want to free Barabbas. They want to free a known criminal. He has been, Jesus has been abandoned by his own people. His own people were doing that. He had been um, beaten. He had been flogged. He had been mocked. He had been spit on by these soldiers, perhaps at the command or perhaps at the hand of this very centurion. And as he's being crucified, listen to how Mark continues to describe it. He says, those who passed by Jesus as he was nailed to the cross, those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Um, People walking by are just mocking him openly. And then Mark continues, in the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, these were the religious leaders, were also mocking him among themselves, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. They're being sarcastic here. What a joke. What a failure. This guy is supposed to be the king of Israel, and he's being crucified right now. And if that were not bad enough, Mark continues, that those who were crucified with him also taunted him. The criminals who were there getting the penalty for their crime, they're taunting him too as they're dying. If you could imagine this scene, it is bleak. 
uh, Jesus is up there. It is dark. It is bleak. And then Mark puts it, puts it into words. He says, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This was the middle of the day, and darkness came over the whole land. The word that Mark uses there to describe land um, is actually the word where we get, like, geology from and geography. It means the whole earth. When Mark chooses to use that word to describe the darkness that fell over the land, what he is saying is um, God is sending darkness over the entire earth because of what's happening here. Darkness is a bad thing to have in ancient literature or in, like, new literature. I mean, darkness is bad. It means the absence of what? The absence of light, the absence of good. It means the absence of God. And what Mark means for us to see here is that God has withdrawn his presence from the earth because of what is happening here, what is happening there on the cross. And out out of the darkness, out of the darkness, Jesus cries, Three, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That's Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic in those days. They wrote in Greek. They spoke Aramaic. Mark, Mark put this in Aramaic because he, wants, he wanted us years later to be able to like, get what Jesus cried from the cross. This is, this is so important. And then he translated, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He was crucified at nine in the morning. Three hours later, it went dark. Three hours later, he cries this. He was hanging on that cross for six hours and cried, why have you forsaken me? The Greek for loud voice, this is kind of a fun detail. Um, in, in Greek, if you transliterate it, it's actually phone megale which, if you put that together, it's megaphone. That's where we get, like, the word megaphone from. Jesus cries out with his megaphone, which is meant to, like, be, this is a cry that is meant to go across the entire world for all the world to hear. My God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? This is all he could muster with his strength, and it's a penetrating question. That's a hard question for us to even understand or to comprehend. It's actually a quote from Psalm 22. The Psalms are a book of um, poetry from the Old Testament. It's, it's called a Psalm of Lament. These were um, Psalms that were written that were often very sad, often full of anguish, often Psalms that were asking God, God, where are you? Listen to the words of Psalm 22. Jesus quotes it directly. He's, this is how it starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. That's why the Psalms are just so wonderful, because they capture, they capture what the experience is to be human. They use this word forsaken, they use it again and again, and what it means again and again is to be cast off, to be rejected to be far from. And in this like, case, it means like, for, God to hi- for God to hide his face from. That's the right word for this situation. Jesus has been abandoned by everyone, by his friends, by his followers, by his people, by his leaders. 
But through the whole time, he feels like God has not yet abandoned him. God hasn't abandoned him. Even in this cry of abandonment, he still has the faith to say, my God, my God. To the end, Jesus is faithful. And yet in this moment, where is God? In this moment, God is missing. Has God, his father, actually abandoned him there on the cross? And if so, what on earth does that, can that possibly mean? Jesus seems to think that's what's happening. That's why he cries out like this. If he didn't cry out like this, we wouldn't take this so seriously. Um, Mark seems to think that's what's happened too. It's why he continues the story like this. It says, when some of the bystanders heard it, heard Jesus cry in Aramaic, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. The reason they say that is because, um, remember, the Aramaic for my God is Eloi, and Elijah is Elijah, and so those two things sound familiar. They think he's calling for Elijah when he's really calling for my God. Um, and so what happens is someone runs, fills a sponge with sour wine, puts it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In popular Judaism of that day, um, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who before he died, um, God took his whole body up to heaven. And in popular Judaism of that day, if there was a righteous man who was suffering uh, and who needed to be saved, who needed to have his life spared, um, popular Judaism said that Elijah would swoop down from heaven and actually save this person. And so when they're offering him sour wine like this, um, it's not because they're being kind to him because he's thirsty. It's not because they're even mocking him. It's because they want to um, give him a little more life, to have him hold on a little bit longer because maybe God will save him at the last minute. Maybe God will send Elijah down in the last minute and actually save Jesus. And then Jesus gave a loud cry and he breathed his last. Elijah didn't save him. He died there that afternoon. God didn't save him. God didn't send Elijah. God the Father turned his face away, allowing him to die there, abandoned on that Friday afternoon, alone, in the dark, separated from the one that he called my God. This is the moment. This is the cataclysmic thing that happened that history uh, turns on. It's hard for us to even imagine. Um, Mark gives us more detail. He says, and then the curtain of the temple the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the centurion wouldn't have seen this. This was outside of Jerusalem. The temple was inside of Jerusalem, a ways away. Um, the temple was the center of religious life for the Jewish people. Um, it's where all the holy stuff happened. The temple was where God lived. It's where God dwelled. And in the center of the center of the center of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies where no human could go except for once a year the high priest could go there. And separating the place where God was from the rest of the temple and from the rest of the world was this one curtain. And when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. And that means a lot of things. One of the things it means is that the separation between God and the rest of the world has been torn apart, which is really good news. The other thing it means is that the temple 
that room that no one can touch, that's not the place to find out who God is anymore. If you want to fix your eyes on who God is, if you want to see God, don't look there. Mark is saying, instead, look here. Look on the cross. This moment of God-forsakenness, this is paradoxically somehow the place where God shows the depth of who he actually is, the depth of his being. If you want to fix your eyes on God, fix your eyes on the cross. That is when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, truly this man was God's son. This is what the centurion saw, whether he grasped all of this or not. This is what he saw. In this way Jesus died, alone, abandoned, left by God, not saved. It's interesting. This is kind of another sidebar. Sometimes, sometimes we want to believe in Jesus um, we want to see the miracles. We want to ask for something and get it. We want to see evidence of Jesus. We want to see um, really awesome things happen. And this centurion, he didn't see those things. He didn't see uh, miracles. He didn't see five loaves and two fish feed 15,000 people. He didn't see the walking on the water. He didn't even ask Jesus for something and get it. All this man saw was this, this guy die alone on the cross. Sometimes we look for Jesus in these miracles, in these um, answered prayers. And that's fine as far as it goes, because sometimes Jesus does do the miracle and does come through. But if that's the only place we're looking for Jesus, we're going to be disappointed. We're also not going to look in the right place. Because the place to look, to see Jesus, to really know who he is, is to fix your eyes on his cross. That's what he sees, him dying in this way, forsaken by God. And so now I want to do some interpretation. What, what does this mean? What does this mean that somehow Jesus died God forsaken on the cross? The first thing that it means, it has to do with judgment. This is like the feel-good sermon of the summer. I fully realize that. It's like beautiful out. Everyone's going surfing afterwards. They're going to the beach for beach dinner. Let's talk about God forsakenness and judgment. Um, <laughs> this is actually really good news though. Jesus dying like this, it's not, it's not accidental. Andy talked about this last week. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark why he came. He came to give his life. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came so that when he gave his life, there would be some sort of payment made, whatever that means, and it would free people from what they were uh, trapped by. Uh, the Father, God the Father, didn't abandon Jesus because he's uncaring or because it was too hard to save him, or because he was apathetic or, um, or, or negligent, but because this was the moment that God sent Jesus into the world for, so that, listen, he could take on the judgment for our sin. And thus, he could take on God's judgment of us as sinners that we all are. Here's the big story, right? Sin is the thing that fractures our relationship with God. Sin is doing the things that we shouldn't do. Um, the things that cause us to walk away from God, the things that cause us um, to turn away from God and not do the thing God wants, not do the stuff that God has designed us for, the ways that we've hurt one another, the way we've hurt ourselves, the way we've hurt God. That's what sin is. And what sin does is it costs us our relationship with God. And it costs us our life. 
Because when that relationship with God is fractured, we become separated from God. And when we become separated from God in an eternal sense, we die. But because God so loved the world and so loved you, he doesn't want you to die like that or be separated from you like that. He knew that sin and its consequences are the obstacle that need to be removed and set aside and forgiven. And so he sent Jesus into this world to deal with the consequences of our sin, removing that obstacle once and for all. Quite simply, when Jesus died on the cross, God's judgment of our sin, our evil, our darkness, it was executed, it was poured out on Jesus. This is what the darkness that, the, that was over the land, this is what that darkness means. Other people have died deaths that were worse than Jesus's from a physical perspective. There are more painful, more humiliating, more excruciating ways to die, but no one has ever died in true God abandonment like that. That's God's judgment being poured out. Mark doesn't tell us these details um, like, like you would read in a theological book, because Mark's not writing theology like that. He's writing a story. Paul's letters, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, he talks more in theological terms. Um, when he talks about the cross, he says things like, when Jesus died there, God forgave our sins, erasing the record of wrongs, erasing the record of sins that stood against us when he nailed it to the cross, setting it aside when he nailed it to the cross. What Paul means by that is, in some way, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he took on to himself our sins. He literally became the record of wrongs that stood against us. He embodied our sinful humanity. He embodied um, our sin, and he took it, and when he died there, that record was erased. It was put to death. He puts it even more clearly in another letter. He said, for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, God made him to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be freed from the consequences of our sin. Jesus became, in some crazy way, he became our sin for us and was put to death, was destroyed then and there. That's why God turns his face away. Jesus literally takes onto himself our sin and God judges us, judges our sin right there. He says no to us in our sin when he says no to Jesus there on the cross. He rejects it. In that moment, Jesus has taken our place as sinners. He has taken our place in the death that we ought to suffer because of our sins. He dies for us and in our place. So God's judgment doesn't fall on us. Instead, it falls on Jesus when he's abandoned there, left there to die so that we might live. What this means for you is a constellation of amazing things. But what it means for you this morning that I'll focus on is that you are free, absolutely free, from the judgment for your sins that ought to fall on you, from the punishment, from the guilt, from the penalty that your sins rightfully should cause you. In this way, you are forgiven. You're free from them. You're free to be free. What that means is that that thing you're holding on to, the skeleton that keeps popping out of your closet, that thing that you can't find a way to be free from that haunts you, 
It is not yours to hold on to any longer. You don't need to be the judge of yourself because God has already executed your judgment on your behalf, and you are free from it. And that's something we talked about, what keeps you up at night. That's something that ought to cause you to sleep well tonight. For some people, I know it is guilt that keeps you up. It's guilt that makes you wrestle when you're trying to go to sleep. If that is you tonight, rather than wrestling in your guilt, here's what you do. You don't even need to ask God for forgiveness. Instead, tonight, thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for what he did on the cross. Say to him, God, I know the thing I've done. I'm guilty for it. I know it's wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I don't want to do it any longer. I want to live differently. And thank you, God, for freeing me, for forgiving me from it. Is that pattern of treating your own sin, is that part of your faith? Is that part of your following Jesus? If not, it needs to be. That's a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, acknowledging the things that we shouldn't do, saying we're going to do them differently, and thanking God for forgiveness, thanking God for what he did through Jesus. Because your sin has been dealt with and judged and put to death, it means the consequences are over for you too. And so the threat of separation, of abandonment from God, that threat doesn't exist for you any longer. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you don't have to be forsaken we will never have to experience the abandonment that Jesus experienced that day. Now, for some of you who are like theology guys or thinkers, that sort of thing, for some of you, um, this might bring up all kinds of questions. Like, wait, wait, wait. How could God, how could God abandon himself like this? Like, how could God do that? Why would God do that? That sounds like it's impossible to do also. Because Christians believe that Jesus is God. Uh, and so if God the Father is up in heaven and, and somehow abandons God the Son on the, on the cross, then how does God abandon himself? How does God turn his face from himself? If God abandons Jesus on the cross, does that mean Jesus somehow like stops being God or something like that? Um, these sorts of questions plague theologians. It's why theology books are like thousands and thousands of pages long. Um, so this is where it gets tricky, but it also gets creative and it also gets inspiring at a point. So I'll give you a little bit of Theology 101 and then a little bit of like advanced theology, which is like 901 or something like that. Um, so you've heard of the concept, the idea of the Trinity. It's something that um, we don't talk about that much because that, that word doesn't actually appear in the Bible. But here's kind of the story of the Trinity. Um, as they were putting together, like for hundreds of years, as they were putting together the books of the New Testament, what they discovered is that God is tricky. God is kind of hard to understand because you have like God, the God of the Old Testament, who we think of as God the Father. Like you have that God and then Jesus comes along and these New Testament writers make it seem like Jesus is God too. And how could that be? How could Jesus be God and God the Father be God? Um, And so they're finding a way to like deal with that and then they realize, oh, wait a minute, there's also something called the Spirit. And the Spirit is also kind of, seems to be God. And that's in the Old Testament and the New. Um, and so how do we deal with that? How do we talk about a God who seems to have revealed himself, not just as like God the Father, but in these three different ways, as the Father, as the Son, and the Spirit. And so what they did is they needed a word to talk about that. And the word that they picked to talk about that was the word Trinity. 
Um, God is somehow one God, but he exists in three persons or three like ways of being. And everything I'm saying is wrong theologically because there's no right way to talk about it. Because God is not three. God is one. But God is also three. He's not just one. It's super confusing, right? Um, <laughs> we can't comprehend it because we don't exist like that. We're just one person, like it or not. But God is God. God can exist whatever way God decides to exist. That's how God decides to exist. And God has decided to exist in these three persons who are also one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you can't have one without the other, and that's, that's, that's God. That's kind of theology 101. Um, theology 901 is that how can God abandon himself? How on earth does that make sense? How could that work? Did Jesus truly experience abandonment? And the answers to this question are all over the place. They are really, really complicated, hard to understand, um, and none of the answers are really buttoned up and rock solid, except to say, Scripture seems to say that Jesus truly experienced abandonment. He truly seemed to experience being abandoned by God. And so what we can pull from that is that somehow, in some way, within God's own person, he takes the experience of being abandoned by God into himself. That's mysterious. It's hard to understand. Somehow God experiences abandonment. And what that means for you, what that means for us, and this is why this is really important. When you think about the ways that you have experienced abandonment, think about the ways where you have not gotten what you wanted from God or what you felt like you needed from God, when you think about the ways you've been left alone by God or by people, this is what that means. God knows what that's like. God knows what that is like. God has experienced it. Jesus has experienced it. And he has experienced it even past the point where we can ever now fall. He has experienced being forsaken by God. And for you, that ought to spell great hope and comfort in those seasons in life, in those moments where you feel alone, where you feel like no one is there for you, like you don't feel like God is there, it ought to give you comfort and hope that God knows what that's like, and so God is in it with you. Think for a moment of the ways that you feel left alone, that you feel abandoned. It could be um, a hard breakup. It could be a death that you weren't expecting. Someone was torn from you. It could be like, your parents, not like literally leaving you, or maybe literally leaving you, but leaving you alone to fend for yourself, not being there for you. It could be someone's betrayal of you that they might not even know about. Or think for a moment, not of what someone else has done, but just the way that you're lonely, the hand that life has dealt you. I mean, not to get political and wherever you fall on, this, on the sides of this issue, but think about those kids and those families who have been separated down at the border. Um, waiting undoubtedly in fear to be reunited. God knows what that's like. God has been there. Jesus has been separated like that. And so he is able to be with us in that, in ways that are truly, truly helpful. It means that God identifies with you 
when you feel abandoned, when you who feel lonely or left alone, who didn't receive the help, who feel torn from the people you love, it means that Jesus can be there with you, at your side and by your side, in it with you, because he has firsthand experience. Listen to the way that the writer of Hebrews puts this, and he talks about Jesus as the high priest, but look at how he puts it. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wherever you are in your loneliness, wherever you're being tested, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, Jesus knows what that's like. He is able to sympathize with us. And in this passage, we are invited to approach him in those moments with boldness, to find his help in our time of need. Is that part of your faith? In your time of need, in your time of abandonment, do you approach God for mercy, for help? Sometimes in those moments, I know this, sometimes in those moments, it's natural for us to assume people have abandoned us, the world's kind of left us behind. God must not be on our side either. God must not be with us in it. It's in these moments that we need to learn to remember, to learn to trust in God, to rely on God, to ask for God's presence, to make himself known, to help us. Because we can't do it on our own. I had experienced just on Friday where this kind of came it came to life for me. I was having, just having a bad, like we all have these bad days, just one of these bad days where I was just feeling, I was feeling down, I was feeling alone in something. Um, I was feeling kind of hopeless. I was feeling like I could see myself going down that emotional road of despair, of growing weary, of losing heart. And I was feeling pretty bad about myself actually. <clears throat> and I was sitting there, actually I was standing, and. I thought to myself, I'm not even joking, I think I preached a sermon about growing weary and losing heart. Something about fixing your eyes on Jesus. Um, I should think about what that means. Looking at Jesus in times of growing weary and losing heart. And here's what I found myself. I found myself thinking, I am just looking inside of myself for strength. I'm just looking inwardly for the resources that I have. And so what I did in that moment, I said, I don't have what it takes. And I sat down, I stopped, uh, and I prayed instead. It's in those times, in, in those moments, that I need to learn to remember to fix my eyes on Jesus the most. And if you're anything like me, and I bet you are, um, I bet you need to learn that too. It's what we're invited to in this passage. It's what we're invited to um, by Jesus when he takes the full extent of abandonment onto himself in his own life. It's what I invite you to this morning, into the hope, into the promise, into the comfort that God is with you in your aloneness. And he is there to help you. He is there to carry you through. He is there to give you strength and sustain you. All you have to do is learn to ask him. When the centurion fixed his eyes on Jesus and saw him die, abandoned by God, this is what it meant. He took our judgment for us. He took our abandonment for us so that we never have to be. He's with us still. Now, 
Obviously, if Jesus is with us still, he died. So obviously, if he's with us still, uh, the cross is not the end of the story. Because three days later, as Mark says, God the Father in the power of the Spirit raised the Son from death and gave him new life and put him uh, alive for us and for this world. This Jesus, the living Jesus, who has been through this, who's experienced this, this is who we bear witness to. This is who we represent in the world. And this is what gives us new purpose. When we fix our eyes on Jesus on the cross, dying in this way, forsaken, we see a God, we see Jesus who has given himself to free us from judgment, who is with us in our abandonment, who stops at nothing to get us back, to win his broken and lost world back. When we fix our eyes on Jesus on the cross, we see the depths of God's love. This is the love that we represent as a church, as a community, into this world. This is the love that we are to share with those out there that keep us up at night because they don't know what God has done. They haven't seen what God, they haven't experienced it. We are called to represent that to the world out there. And this sends us out with all sorts of purpose. As we go into our lives, into our families, into our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, our parks, wherever we are, we bear the good news of the cross of Jesus, the Son of God. And God, when we do that, God will open people's eyes, just like he opened the centurion's eyes that day, so that they also can confess, this is God's Son, and worship him and follow him too. Let's pray that as a community, that would keep us up at night and that would send us forward with a new and renewed purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, um, for life. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you have sent your son into this world, mysterious as it is, to give himself so that we don't have to die, so that we could live we pray that we would respond to that with humility, with gratitude, with a new sense of purpose and wanting to follow you. God, we thank you that you took on the experience of being abandoned into your own being, into your person, so that as lonely, as, as alone as we feel sometimes, we know that you're there with us in it and we can trust in you. And so we pray, Lord, for every single man and woman and child who is hearing my voice right now, we pray, God, that they would give their loneliness to you, that they would give their abandonment, their forsakenness to you, and trust in you instead. God, as a church, we thank you that you have gathered us around this good news, this gospel that sends us out into this world. We pray, God, that as a church, we would be people who represent you and this love, the depths that this love goes into this world who so desperately needs it. We think of the people in our lives who we wish knew you in the way that would give them life. We take a moment to pray for them now. We pray that through us, 
through whatever means you choose, you would communicate yourself to them so that they can also see you as God, as God's Son, um, follow you and love you. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray that you would be present now again as we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.